I'm seriously thinking that if we end up getting the money to make over the sanctuary, that maybe we'll get one of those repelling lines to run the whole length of the place, and I'll come sliding in on one of those for this series. Actually, I've heard tell that they're actually thinking about putting a trap door in here for me if I go long, but I pray that doesn't happen. I just want to thank Courtney. I guess she might have slipped out by now. I want to thank Courtney for putting us in an attitude of worship, but I also want to thank her for giving us an attitude of prayer. You see those shoes she's wearing? I went up here praying the whole time. She wouldn't fall off them and hurt herself. So I'm just glad nothing happened like that. So God got all the glory, and we didn't have to pick Courtney up. That's good. <clears throat> well, good morning. My name is Bill Walker. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church. And uh, as you can see, we are in the midst of a series. The series is called Mission Impossible. And it comes from the little book called Titus, written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege by the name of Titus. And as far as a summation statement would go, chapter 1 is basically this. Titus, I want you to go all over the island of Crete. And I want you to install godly leaders in all of the churches so that they may be able to teach God's people how to live godly in Christ Jesus because we live in the midst of a lost and failing world. So each of those statements breaks into the chapters that make up this study. Now, we are in the middle, if you will, of the book. We're in chapter 2 together, and we're focusing in on this idea of teaching them godly living. You know, I have discovered that when you get to the very practical, nitty-gritty parts of the Bible, people get a little edgy. We all like theology. We all like grand, you know, stuff. We like worship. We like all this stuff. But when we actually say, and this is how you're supposed to live, it's like, hmm. Don't really like that portion, Pastor Bill. Don't really enjoy hearing that, Pastor Bill. I get that. I get that. But the beauty of an expository series is I never would have chosen this. I never would have chosen to speak on this if we were talking topically. But because we're not, we're taking it verse by verse, I have no choice. To honor God's word, we have to talk about these things. So Titus chapter 2 this morning as we continue to look at this idea of teaching God's people godly living. And so we have been wrapping our minds around these verses. But as for you, uh, Paul, speaking to Titus, I want you to teach, notice, what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I said this a couple of weeks ago. I've said, I'll say it again. Uh, I said it last week. I'll say it again now. What, what Titus' job was this. Tell God's people how the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, and the mercy of God makes a difference in their everyday lives. Tell them what it means to actually take these powerful, beautiful, incredible, transcendent truths and put them in shoe leather every day. So that's what he's doing here. He's trying to help God's people to take good doctrine and live it out. And so he began by addressing the older men. Two weeks ago, we talked to the older men. The older men are those who are 50 years of age and older. Any older men in the house? I'm one of them. 50 years of age and older. He's talking to us. And this is what he says. Older men are to be, what's the word? What, what's the word? Yeah, it's, it's time to take life seriously, guys. We have hit a point in life where we now have fewer days ahead of us than we have behind us. And so we now are closer to Christ than we've ever been before. And if there's ever a time to get serious about your walk with the Lord, it's now, older men. Don't play games. Get serious. Be sober-minded. 
dignified, have self-control, and you should have sound or healthy faith, love, and steadfastness growing in your life and experience in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you weren't here two weeks ago, you can go back into the archives, either on the website or on the Grace Church app, and you can find both a video and an audio of that message. Last week, I'll be careful, we spoke to older, not old women, older women. And again, we would classify that age somewhere around 50 years of age. You at this point probably have grown children and maybe even some grandchildren in your life. The older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior at this point in your life. And you're not slanderers. That means you're no longer controlling. Try to work out all the things to what you think should be best. You're no longer controlling. And you're not being controlled by anything other than Jesus Christ at this point in your life. You trust him to control your life, and you love him so much that he's become the focus of your life. And when you're there, older women then are to teach what is good. You really can't teach what is good until you started to master this in your own life and experience. So, that was last week. If you are an older woman, 50 years of age and older, and are curious as to what we talked about, I encourage you to go back to the archives, either on the website or on the Grace Church app, and see their audio or video. Please, indulge. Today. Today, we're going to focus on the young women. The young women would be those who are 50 years of age and probably less, all the way down to 13. You see, in biblical times, you could get married at the age of 13. Mary, when she had the Christ child, was probably 13 or 14 years of age. So in biblical times, a young woman was anybody from 13 to, thir uh, to 50, roughly. You probably still have children in your life. You're probably married at this point. And so today, the instruction as we move forward and what it means to live out the grace of God in your life is that the older women are to help train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Pray for me as we tackle this. And then next week, younger men, you are to be self-controlled. Again, the point of all of this direct teaching about how to live our lives is in order that we would adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, so that other people can see what it looks like to have a relationship with the living God like we claim to have. I need prayer before we go any further because we're about to tread on ground that angels fear to walk on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love. And thank you that any time you address us or speak to us in and through your word, it is always for our good. Because you are a good, good father. You always want what is best in our lives. And that's particularly true for the young women that are here in our congregation, that are here in your church. You desire more than anything that they would live lives of beauty and joy, lives of, of, of just fulfillment, lives of liberation. And that's all keyed into what we're about to talk about. 
Help us, Father, to journey into this text. May the Spirit of God give us wisdom, I pray. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said, thank you, thank you. I appreciate your prayers with me and for me. Okay, well, it just so happens that a couple of weeks ago, the latest cultural role model has come on the scene. Her name is none other than, yes, Wonder Woman. And there's a byline that goes with this. She is called the woman of power, grace, wisdom, and wonder. She is the latest object of inspiration for girls and young women, 13 to 50. And she's also the latest object of lust for boys and young men. Yes, she is. This is what happens. You know, the interesting thing about the Wonder Woman comic is this. It was originally designed by its creator to teach sexual liberation back in the 1940s. Seriously. The uh, creator of this uh, comic book character is a man by the name of Dr. William Moulton Marston, a psychiatrist, an inventor, a comic book writer, and a very morally sick individual. He created Diana, Amazonian warrior princess, based upon his wife Elizabeth and their live-in lover, Olive Brine. So even back in the 40s, they were living a very emancipated, liberated lifestyle uh, for the culture of those days. Here, here's something uh, interesting in the category of strange coincidences. Uh, Olive Brine, the chief inspiration for Wonder Woman, was the daughter of Ethel Brine who famously opened the first birth control clinic in the United States with her sister, Margaret Sanger, the forerunner of Planned Parenthood. Interestingly, Wonder Woman was inspired by a sexually liberated woman whose family opened and operated abortion clinics to deal with the unre unwanted results of the sexual uh, liberation. And that's called STDs and babies. They dealt with those things. Dr. Marston's intent with the Wonder Woman comic and its many depictions of bondage, remember she has that lasso, he created her with that lasso, was to induce eroticism in the readers as a part of what he called sex love training. All this to say, and I'm not going to go any further down that, all this to say, Wonder Woman was originally created to replace and this is a quote, the feminine archetype of the tender, submissive, peace-loving, good woman. Wonder Woman was created to replace the image of a biblical woman. Interestingly, interestingly. The biblical image of womanhood, let me just say this, is also one of power and grace and wisdom and wonder. But the biblical woman displays it in a life of faithfulness, purity, nurture, self-sacrificing love, and yes, submission. Wonder Woman was created as an antitype of the biblical woman. But this is the image that I gave you last week when we were talking about what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Speaking to the older women, I used the image of Jesus as the heavenly bridegroom and the church being his wedded, his, his espoused wife. So let me just say this. As we begin our discussion this morning, 
What we're about to talk about makes no sense. No sense unless you have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 make it very clear. It is the grace of God that has appeared and he brings salvation to his people. When you embrace Jesus Christ with your life, you come to him and you repent of your sin and by faith you embrace him as the Lord and leader of your life, the lover of your life, your heavenly bridegroom. When you do that, he changes everything. He changes all of the stereotypes. He changes all of the cultural norms. He transforms your life because he does this. He begins to woo us through his Holy Spirit to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Those things that Wonder Woman stood for, to, to be able to be that femme fatale who walks all over men, and if you get in her way, she's fatal to you. She doesn't know anything about submission. The godly woman says, I renounce worldly passions and I renounce ungodliness and I desire now because of him to live self-controlled upright in a godly life in this present age without this point everything we're going to look at everything we're going to talk about makes no sense but with that in mind with a relationship with Jesus Christ in place, with an understanding of his goal through his grace in our lives, what does it look like in real life to do this, to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in a young woman's life? Let's consider that, shall we? What I want to do in the next few moments is I want to accomplish a couple of things. First, I want to give instructions to the older women. Because what we're about to talk about, quite frankly, I'm not supposed to tell the younger women this stuff. It's really the older women who have life and experience in this area that are supposed to come alongside the younger women and empathize because you're a woman with another woman about their needs. But me, I'm just a preacher teaching. And that's ineffective at best. So I want to encourage you older women, you mature mentors, to hear what we're talking about, to gain this counsel so that you can share this counsel when God puts somebody in your life to do that or you see somebody who needs uh, godly counsel. And then I want to speak to the younger women. I, I want to speak uh, to those who are 50 and younger. You, you may be married, maybe not. You may have children in the home, you may not. But I want to talk about how you can adorn and beautify the gospel of God's saving grace in your lives and how to keep from reproaching the word of God. I'm going to do that in two ways. This time's just clicking along. Click, 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 click. I want to talk about the why. The why. Or the motivation and the means behind the instruction. The why. Now, the why's not on the surface. It's actually down in the verses we just looked at. But I want to tell you about the why behind this instruction. And in the why is both the motivation to want to do this and the means in which to accomplish this. And then I actually want to look at the instruction itself. I want to look at the meaning of the instruction. We'll get as far as we can and uh, we'll do our best to try and cover this material. But this stuff is powerful and it's potent in our day and in our age. Why? Why, Pastor Bill Walker, why would I even want to do what you're about to talk about and even if I wanted to do it, how on earth can I? Well, let me tell you. 
it all comes back to your identity and relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the motivation behind wanting to even do this, and he is the means to make this instruction possible in your life. It all comes back to your relationship with Jesus, finding your identity in Jesus. You know, the providence of God is a wonderful thing. This past week, there was a gathering of, of folks in uh, Arizona who are part of what's called the Gospel Coalition. This past week, they had all these men, all these women on the ground talking about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this past week on Thursday, a video was uploaded by the, uh, to, uh, the Gospel uh, Coalition of three women Three women talking about what it means to have your identity in Jesus. And I thought, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I need this. Because it's one thing for a guy to tell women about what that means. It's another thing for women to tell women what that means. And so I'm going to show you a, a clip of this video. And again, the three women in there, they're not identified, but let me tell you who they are. The one on the left that you'll see is Blair uh, Line. The one in the middle is Trilla Newbell. And the one on the right is Rosaria Butterfield. These three women have interacted around the topic of what is identity in Christ. So please, take a minute and watch this. Let's just get straight into this question. What does it look like to find our identity in Christ and not in anyone else or anywhere else? What does that look like? Looks like dying to yourself. <laughs> it looks yeah. like death. Yes. <laughs> That's what it looks like. Yeah. No, really. It looks like recognizing that when you are fighting to find your identity in something else, yeah. there's an idol, big or little, mm -hmm. that is running the show and is stealing glory from God. Mm. And so we want to do, you know, two classic moves of the Reformation, to destroy the idols and to proclaim the Word of God. Yeah. And we need to do that with ourselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We start at home. We start with our minds and our hearts and our devotions. We start there yeah. because we're called to die. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think what would be helpful is if we can think about some of the things we find our identity in. Mm -hmm. So we can find our identity in being a wife, mm -hmm. being a mother, Mm -hmm. in our job, mm -hmm. in our social status, mm -hmm. in our ethnicity. Mm -hmm. We can find our identity in um, our bodies, mm -hmm. in our gifts. Mm -hmm. in, so, our, in our sin patterns. In that, our sin patterns. That we really have just, we just have such an affection for right. that we think you should have an affection for it also. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what do we do when we... We've, and some of these things, minus the sin patterns, are good things. <laughs> right, right. Sin patterns, not so good. Not so good. But yeah. it's, these are roles, really, right? Yeah, in a lot of ways. Which makes me think about, so recently I grappled with this. Um, I remember I was sitting in church, and someone was talking about the Lord's return. Come soon, Lord. And I was thinking, but I want to see my children grow up oh, wow. and get married. I have three little children. The oldest is four, you know, and I want to see them serve the Lord and, you know, and and I just thought, as the Lord brought it to my attention, what a sinful thought. Mm -hmm. These are good things, but it's not the best thing, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so I was just super convicted by that. And 
And it brought me back to confessing my sin, which brought me back to the work that the Lord has done in my life and the fact that I'm born again and I've been elect by God, you know, just right. going back over those truths and washing myself with those truths to say, Lord, help me that your return would be greater than the roles that I have. These are temporal, temporary roles, you know, yes. as a wife and a mother and a poet or whatever, you know. Um, help me to be rooted in who you are and who you say I am. Who you say I am. Mm. One of the things that I was thinking is, what does it even mean that we are we find our identity in Christ. I think mm -hmm. we can throw these things around mm -hmm. yeah. and assume mm -hmm. people understand yeah. what that means. Mm -hmm. So what does it, what does it mean yeah. for us to yeah. I, be identified in Christ? That is so key because I yeah. think if you don't start there, mm. you're going to miss the mark. It means that we understand that two things are going to inherit to the new Jerusalem, the word of God and our souls. And it means that we leave everything else behind. Mm. Identity in Christ means we are a new Jerusalem people. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Can't take anything with you but the word of God. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, the, there, throughout the scripture you can trace the theme of union with Christ. Mm -hmm. yes. um, you know, in Romans 6, we've yes. died with Christ and now we've... You know, he's resurrected. Yes. We've resurrected in him. And now we're able to live this new life out. Yes. Um, so constantly reminding, like you said, you started off is talking about the fact that we're, we have to die to ourselves. Right. You know, remind, remind me that I'm dead, you right. know, to this world. I'm dead. Right. Born again. again and born right. again to live to a, a new, new life, life right? a new creation. Absolutely. Right. The old is gone. So, and that means a new identity, right? right. The, the things that I used to do, the things that used to, I, I used to be identified by, I'm no longer identif primarily identified by those things. The video goes on. I only could capture what I could capture for our time here today. But you, you saw a couple of themes there. Ultimately, only your relationship with Jesus Christ transcends this life. And the other theme is if you're going to experience the power of Christ in your life, then you have to die to yourself. And these are the truths that are behind identity. And this is really the motivation and the means behind the instruction that we're actually looking into. It all goes back to Jesus. Jesus. He is the motivation. It is because of his love and his saving work in your life, ladies, that out of gratitude and desire to love and honor him with your lives that you will seek to obey his word in your lives. And that also talks about the means. The means, again, is by death. Dying to your own desire and choosing his desires above your own. Here's a verse of scripture. I'd like every woman, girl, woman in the house to read this verse of scripture aloud with me. Here we go. Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I... Who loved me. That's right. What Paul is saying here is... Because of the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ, I cannot simply live my own lifestyle anymore. 
I cannot nullify God's grace in my life. Rather, I am dying to myself in order that the person of Jesus Christ would manifest himself in me and live out this life he has called me to through me. All of this is predicated upon the scripture we're looking at. You cannot do any of this and you will not want to do any of this if Jesus Christ does not become the center focus of your life. There is the why. He is both the motivation and he is the means. Now, let's actually tackle the instruction. Let's see exactly uh, what Christ has in mind. So, Jesus, ladies, desires for you to do out of love and gratitude and obedience for him the following. The older women are to come along and they are to, notice the word, it is to train the younger women. That just seems weird. You know, I'm going to train you. I don't know. I I think of a dog, you know, obedience classes. That's not really the intent here. I believe it's not. But the idea behind to to train, I, I like what the New Jerusalem Bible translates that word train with. It says to show. So older women are supposed to come alongside the younger women, 13 all the way up to 50, who are struggling in relationships. You're supposed to come along, and you are to model what God has already taught you about relationships, and you come in alongside and instruct both with your lips, but also with your lives. Another way of of taking this word to train is from the NASB version of the Bible. It says to encourage. I like that. In other words, if you see a young woman who's struggling or maybe straying, you don't come along and condemn them. You don't come along and whip them into shape. You come alongside and you love them. You put your arm around them. You encourage them. You build them up. That's what the word encourage means. It means to build them up. But actually, the best way to translate this word train comes from the New King James Version of the Bible, which says this, it is to admonish the young women. That's a kind of strong word. The word literally means to call to one's senses. The older women who are now seasoned with life and experience and with the word of God and relationship with Jesus are to come alongside the younger women in the relationship with their husband and their children and they are to bring the younger women back to their senses. Why? Well, because when you've got a jerk for a husband and a bunch of rebellious kids for your children, it's easy to lose your mind. Correct? And all the young women said? Yeah. Yeah. It is frustrating. It is hard. And you know what? Your emotions are always on the edge. He does this, they do that, and you're like, I've told you a million times, and and, and it just, you're losing your grip on reality, don't you? It's just like you want to bust out and blow up. But along comes the older women, and they have counsel and wisdom, and they offer help and encouragement. You know, um, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, emotions are, are generally valid, and you want to you give them the validity they deserve, but emotions are not a reliable base on which to put your relationship or your family upon. Let me give you some for instances. Ladies, ladies, young women, those with husbands in particular, your husband is a jerk. 
I'm a husband. I'm a jerk. It is part in nature of being a man. Men by nature are depraved. Yes, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and we are selfish. So, ladies, your husbands are jerks, and I'm, I'm case one. You can ask my wife. You know what he does? It annoys you to no end. He leaves the toilet seat up all the time. He does that. He does that. And sometimes you wonder if he does that just to spite you. He bought you a vacuum cleaner for your anniversary gift. He listens to you with the remote in his hand. What did you say? Huh? Huh? I don't know. The football game's on. He snores. He demands, he's, he's demanding in the bedroom. He doesn't spend time with the kids. It doesn't take much to put your emotions on edge. It's a little bit like this. What pushes my buttons? Well, I always ask him, you know, did your mother have you clean up after yourself? Because he'll just be like, oh, I forgot. I didn't, I didn't think about that. Feeling like there's a lack of respect. He might not be very considerate sometimes. You're so lazy. You have two hands and two feet. Get up and make yourself a bagel. Like, or make me a bagel, why not? Most fights end up spurring from these very minor emotional disconnects. Well, the last argument we had was about us announcing our pregnancy. I didn't realize it was an issue until, <laughs> until just now, um, still. But I also learned that a lot of these things aren't issues until many of them are piled up. But it wasn't always like that. When you're fighting, you both, everybody thinks they're right. I'll say, let's be ready at 2 o'clock. I want to walk out of the door at 2. And then at like 2.15, she'll ask me if I was serious. He'll say it in a way like he's like in the military or something and giving me a command. Excuse, 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 blah, 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 blah. We kind of backtrack into like past issues and then it was like, okay, no, let's talk about this issue. I say this, you say that, and back and forth, back and forth. The only time I really feel like there's any guilt is if like deep down you're like, all right, I'm probably not right. I'm probably just arguing to win this. Sometimes, you know, the emotion overtakes the logic. He felt belittled or like less of a person or that I was insulting him in some way. I would love for time to stop and let's rewind a little bit and then go back and re-race what I just said. It's kind of like that. And re-race it, yes, re-race it, she said. So, older women are to come alongside the younger women in their frustration, in their pain, in their anger, and you are to train the younger women. You are to bring the younger women back to their senses and to encourage them to love their husbands, to love their husbands. Now, ladies, older women, let me explain how you should do this. I'm going to give you counsel. And younger women, if you're in a position right now where you're not real happy with your husband, maybe this will be instructive to you too. Here we go. So the older women come along and they identify, they empathize with your, your plight, your, your struggles, because they've been there. And they come along, and you start by telling the younger women the truth. All men are beasts and unthoughtful wretches. He just happens to be yours. <laughs> be honest. It is the truth. Again, there is not a man in this room who is not a depraved sinner and a sinful wretch. We all know this to be true of ourselves. And the truth is, you need to know that as well. So the older woman comes along and affirms what you always knew. But 
She goes on to say, that doesn't change your commitment to him. Your marriage, dear, is not based upon love as an emotion, but love as a commitment to self-sacrifice for him. This is one of those many times where you are to die to yourself and let Christ love him through you. This is the counsel that older women should be giving younger women. And ultimately, you need to say this, uh, older ladies. You need to hear this, younger women. You do not love your husband because he is lovable. You love him because Jesus calls you to, and you love him. That's why you do it. Again, if your identity is not in Christ, if your relationship with Christ is not central in this, it will all come apart. And as we look around our culture, how many actually hang in there? Very few. That's because people cannot get beyond the emotion, the challenges of it all, the hardships that come with it. The older women need to help the younger women understand this before bitterness gets in place. Above all, you need to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers what? You see, love covers that fact that he left the toilet seat up. Love covers the fact that he gave you a vacuum cleaner on your anniversary. Love covers the fact that he snores. You see, if love can't cover it, these things will build up and bitterness will result. And then the relationship really probably has very little chance. Older women, the role you play in the lives of younger women is vital. And so, along the same idea, he goes, not only are you to train uh, young women to love their husbands, but to be, and the word here is self-control, but perhaps a better word for this is sensible. You need to help young women to be sensible. It means to learn to be thoughtful and have self-control. The temptation is to make this moment everything. My daughter does this all the time. Drives me nuts. She, she has this saying, and it happens every single day. This is the worst day ever. I'm like, no, yesterday was. Don't you remember? No, but today now is. And, and, and you know, this is the worst thing that has ever happened. And an older woman, your role is to come alongside her in this moment and say, no, no, dear, trust me, it'll get worse. <laughs> it just will. But if you're not careful in this moment, you need to give them context. If you're not careful in this moment, your emotions in this moment and the way you react and the choices you make will impact your relationship for years to come. Put it in context, dear. Understand what is going on. And a, a love covers a multitude of sins. And so the older women's role in the younger women's life is vital. It's important. It's key. To moving forward. Self-control literally means a life characterized by calm foresight. <sighs> he's a jerk. He's an unthankful wretch, but he's mine. And the ministry God has given me in this world for him is my husband and my children. And I will honor the Lord. Okay, that was the easy one. Now, 
We're going to move on to this one, and we'll try to get as much of this in as we possibly can. Um, not only are they to love their husbands, train them to that, you know, teach them to be uh, sensible about their relationship with their husbands and to be self-controlled, having calm foresight, but also they are to encourage them to be, what's the words? No, ladies, louder. <laughs> Men, turn and watch your wife's lips move. Submissive. To, yeah, I know you can't say it. I know it's hard. You know, I've discovered that um, there, are, there are a few ways to make people's blood pressure rise. One is to be in a movie theater when it's dark and yell, fire! All of a sudden, whoa, what, what? The other is to be in a crowd with women in it and say, and you must be submissive to your husbands. And all of a sudden, all of the oxygen sucked out of the room in that moment. Because we think somehow submission, that's a hard word to say, submission denigrates women. Somehow submission belittles women. Or it makes you somehow less than your husband to be in submission to him. Can I say it is no more condescending for a woman to be submissive to her husband than it is for her husband to be submissive to Christ or for Christ to be submissive to God the Father. Notice what Paul said in Corinthians 11 verse 3. I want you to understand something. That the head of every man is Jesus Christ. That the head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. But Christ is God. Yes. But even in the Godhead. There is a, a, a line of submission out of which ultimately harmony and beauty, beauty and liberation happen. And so, so this is the truth. Submission is not denigration, it's liberation in the wisdom and in the plan of God. Now the ladies are sitting there looking at me saying, well, it's easy for you to say you're a man. And you're right, I'm a man, I'm a man. <laughs> But we need to get it in our minds that God is a God of order. And that whether you look at the tiniest cellular structures or the largest galaxies, what you see is great order, beauty, and harmony. But when something fails to fulfill its function, that's when chaos and disharmony happen. Let me ask you a question. What's cancer? What's cancer? This past Monday, this past Monday, I went to the cancer doctor for my three-year checkup. Uh, I had radical surgery about three years ago. I went to the doctor, and I am pleased to say that at this point of the three-year journey of five, I am still zero without any cancer in my system. So praise be to God. Amen. That's how I responded when the doctor said nothing. I said, yes, thank you, Jesus. But cancer is simply the breakdown of the function of a cell. It's where it begins to divide without stopping, and then it spreads to the surrounding tissues. And if we're not careful, our homes can be like cancer cells, leading to pain and hurt and wounding and even the death of relationships. But God has created structure and function that is designed to bless the home and the family. And here it is. Children are to be submissive to their parents. That's what God has ordained. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands. 
That's what God has ordained. And the husband is to be submissive to Jesus Christ. When each member is fulfilling their role, there is beauty, security, harmony, liberation, and joy in the home. Again, this is how the Godhead works. Jesus Christ, the Son, placed himself willingly under the Father in obedience, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son in obedience, and yet they're all one God. So they're equal in essence, but differing in function, and yet the Godhead is perfect love and harmony and joy. But it only happens when each element is fulfilling its function, and so too in the home. Here we go. I'm going to try and tackle this quickly, but I think it's important to tackle. So, in the wisdom and in the plan of God, God has ordained husbands. I'm speaking to us right now. If you're a husband or a wannabe husband, please take this into consideration. We are responsible before God for the direction and the leadership of our homes. Let me say it one more time because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding here. God has ordained that the husband is responsible before God for the direction and the leadership of our homes. Smart is the man who talks to his wife and with his wife, gaining her insights, her thoughts, and her concerns, but ultimately God is going to hold the man responsible for the choices that make up the direction of the home. That's how God has chosen to do this. I don't know why. I wouldn't have chosen me. My wife is far smarter than I am. And I'm not kidding. It's true. But God chose it this way. And so, I'm going to get off onto a soapbox for a quick second here. Who knows what next Sunday is? Yeah. Do you know what the lowest attendance Sunday in most churches is? Yes. Do you know why? Hey, Daddy, what do you want for Father's Day? Hey, I want to go have a barbecue. Hey, Daddy, what do you want for Father's Day? I want to go to the lake. Hey, Daddy, what do you want for Father's Day? I want to go to the baseball game. You're the spiritual leader of your home. And you're taking your kids everywhere but to the house of God on the day that they say they, you can have anything you want. I'm challenging your spiritual leadership, man, right now. I'm challenging your manhood before Jesus Christ. That if you blow off next Sunday to do something else, you're a miserable failure of a leader in your home for Jesus' sake. So do you feel sufficiently challenged? Okay, we'll find out next week, won't we? Okay. Steve Salvis. Steve Salvis, a wonderful uh, elder here at Grace said this, his pastor, when he married he and his wife Blair, said to Steve Salvis in the marriage ceremony in front of all the people in attendance, he took his finger, put it on Steve's chest, and he said, Steve, the success of your marriage is your responsibility. And men, are you hearing me? How is your marriage? Everything rises and falls on leadership, and you're God's man for leadership in your relationship with your wife. So, if your marriage sucks, that says a lot about you as a leader, doesn't it? Don't blame your wife. Don't blame her. It's on you. It's on me. We are the guys that God has called to lead the family. Okay. So, husbands, that's our role. Wives. Here we go. Ladies and wannabe wives. 
you will not be held responsible before God for the choices that direct your home. But you will be held in, responsible for your submission to those choices before God. Because that is the call of God on the wife in a relationship. Now, obviously, you are not to submit to something that the Scripture clearly mandates against. But your husband is the leader in God's wisdom, and you are the follower in God's wisdom. When you think about a marriage and the way it's supposed to work, I'd like you to think along these lines. Think of a dance. Think of a dance. One leads, one follows. One leads, one follows. And if you get good at this, after a while, you're going to be dancing all over the place, and it's going to be a thing of beauty. It's awesome to watch it happen. How many are good dancers? Ballroom dancers? Oh, I saw that Mexican hand go up. No, no I'm not a ballroom. <laughs> Yes, well, if you want to be a good dancer, it takes effort. It takes time. It takes learning. You've got to figure out where to step and where to move. It takes the same thing in a marriage. If you're going to make a marriage work, somebody's going to lead, guy, and somebody has to follow, lady. And you have to work this out together. And the challenge that I've discovered over the years is this. Rather than this, after a while you get tired of stepping on each other's feet and the wife's tired of his leading and wants to lead herself. So you end up with this in your life. <laughs> Two people, supposed to be married to each other, but they discovered long ago that, um, you know, she just won't submit. That's her problem. Or he won't lead. That's his problem. So many years later, what you discover is they both live in the same house. He's doing his thing. She's doing her thing. They end up at the house, I mean their hotel that they pay a lot of money for. And they get changes of clothes and they get a little bit of food. You know, they get some rest, maybe a little bit of sex. Uh, and over here, you know, she gets what she wants and she's out of her kitchen. She takes care of the kids. But you have two people living in the same house that aren't connected anymore. They're just functioning alongside each other because they can't dance together. And yet, God wants the beauty of the dance, the beauty of submission, the beauty of leadership. Let me see if I can finish by answering a few questions that I know are rolling around your brain. Husbands, right now, you're thinking, my wife won't submit. Wives, you're thinking, my husband won't lead. And then some of you are thinking, but my spouse is unsaved. Well, let me see if I can just take a crack at this, and then we'll call it a day. In the Bible, I'm going to begin with a statement. In the Bible, you are to never, you are to never force your spouse to do anything. You discipline your children, but wives, you don't discipline your husbands. And husbands, you don't discipline your wives. That is not a biblical marriage. You never force your spouse to do anything. To lead, to follow, to have sex, or to do whatever you want. You never force them. You are to influence them and encourage them through love, respect, and prayer. 
That is how you get him to do what he should do and her to do what she should do. It is not by confronting them and, and demanding. It is by, okay, guys, here we go. Men, how do I get my wife to follow my lead and maybe not run the show? You are called to selflessly love your wife. You are called to selflessly love your wife. Husbands are servant leaders. Servant leaders. God will not hold you responsible for your wife's response, but he will hold you responsible for yours. Most women willingly follow a man they believe truly loves them. If you want to influence your wife to follow your lead, to take the position of submission, then you love her as Christ loved the church and died in the process to redeem it. This is the man's role. Women, my husband won't lead. Okay, well, let me help you with that. Women, you are called to respect your husbands. You say, but he's not respectable. I know, I know, but you do not respect him because of who he is. You respect him because of who Jesus is. And he tells you, respect your husband. By the way, he also says that you are to forgive him, but why should I forgive him? Because Christ forgave you. He also tells you to, to love him. Why should I love him? Because Christ loved you. He says you're supposed to give him more chances. It's called grace. Why should I? Because God gave you grace. You should show him mercy, but I'm tired. Because Christ showed you mercy, you're supposed to give it to him. Wow. How does somebody experience this identity in Christ? Say it with me. You die. Yeah, by the way, the woman that said that, Rosario Butterfield, uh, the woman on the left in that video, uh, she's actually, she was an avowed homosexual. Uh, lesbian. Uh, she actually taught at a college level. Uh, she came into the gospel, in relationship with the gospel, got wonderfully saved, turned her back in Christ upon that lifestyle, and is now following Jesus Christ in purity. It happens. Christ gives you the power to do this, but you got to die. She knew what she was talking about when she said, it feels like death. It does. If you want your husband to lead, then you need to trust Jesus Christ to let him fail and not hold it over his head. And then trust Jesus Christ to let him lead and watch him fail and not hold it over his head. You see, it is by your encouragement, it is by your support, it is by your affirmations that you're pushing him forward to take his role in Christ and he will find his voice if you will give it back to him. The issue of control has always been a big one. The issue of control has always been a big one. The more you seek to control the situation, ladies, the worse your situation will get. God holds you responsible for submission, not the choices themselves. And then lastly, pray. Pray earnestly for your heart before the Lord and your spouse's heart. That the Holy Spirit will transform both of you. That the scriptures will make entrance, that repentance and faith will be granted to both of you. <sighs> aye, aye, aye. Well, 
What if my spouse is unsaved? I already gave you the answer. It doesn't change your role at all. Ladies, if your husband's unsaved, you are called to be submissive to his leadership, so long as it honors God. Men, if your wife is unsaved, then you are called to lead her as Christ would lead her in love and in service. You see, it doesn't change anything just because our, our spouse isn't in Christ. It just really makes what we do that much more important because God wants to save your spouse. And he will do it in and through you, often modeling what it looks like to live in love like Jesus. Wow. Pastor Bill. Oh, let me get rid of these guys. So, the goal would be that you would start to experience the beauty of leading and following Leading and following. And before you know it, you're going to be dancing a beautiful, beautiful arrangement called the grace of God in your home. Let me pray. Father, this stuff is real. And every one of the situations represented in the people here today is unique. And sometimes we can think the uniqueness of our situation makes it an exception. But help us to realize there are no exceptions to this principle. It's just sometimes harder than other times. And I pray for the young women that you would help them to realize that their relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing in their lives. As a New Jerusalem person, the only thing that makes it to heaven is their soul and the word of God invested in them. I pray for the men. Lord, our leadership is essential in our homes. And I pray that you'll even bring conviction to our hearts that we need to lead in spiritual matters. May your grace make many marriages dance in beauty, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, Father, I pray. And all God's people said, God bless you.